Welcome to episode number nine on the My Story Podcast. The My Story Podcast features interviews with leaders, influencers, and entrepreneurs who tell us their story and the life lessons they've learned along the way. Hi, my name's Conrad Weaver, and I'm the host for your show. I'm a filmmaker, entrepreneur, a storyteller, and I love sailing. Take me out on the water. I'd really appreciate it. I'm so glad you stopped by for today's show. It's a really special show, a special interview with a new friend of mine who I met through the work I'm doing with my documentary, Heroin's Grip. Denny Wilson is the founder, president, and CEO of FI Community Housing Incorporated. He's an author, a speaker, a humanitarian, philanthropist, and an amazing person. He founded FI Community Housing in 1995, and today it's Ohio's largest peer-operated recovery community. We're going to hear Denny's amazing story and the journey he took from addiction to the work he is doing today in saving the lives of people caught up in addiction's web. His story is inspiring and dramatic, and I think you'll get a better understanding of the challenging aspects of addiction and recovery after listening to this interview. But first, a word from our sponsor for today's episode. Furnace Hills Coffee Company roasts amazing coffee. They have a great story too. I'll have to tell you, once you drink a cup of coffee from Furnace Hills, I promise you'll never want coffee from the big name brands again. Why? Their beans are sourced directly from great farmers and it's roasted fresh. You order it today and you'll get coffee beans that have been roasted this week, maybe even the same day that it's shipped to your door. The other cool thing about Furnace Hills Coffee Company that I love is their mission is to employ people with developmental disabilities. Their chief roaster is Erin. She has Down syndrome and even has a coffee blend named after her. And just for the My Story podcast listeners, when you order from FurnaceHillsCoffee.com, use the coupon code MYSTORY, all one word, and get 25% off your order. Check it out. It's special coffee roasted by special people. FurnaceHillsCoffee.com. And now, here's my interview with Denny Wilson. Denny, welcome to the show. Thank you, Conrad. So, Denny, tell me a little bit about who you are and what do you do? Well, my name is Denny Wilson, and I am the founder, president, and CEO of FI Community Housing based in the Birthplace of Recovery, Akron, Ohio. Um, We're entering into our 25th year of services providing best known for recovery housing, uh, recovery community centers, and providing a full range of services from spiritual to emotional to existential needs for those that are in recovery. So you said that Akron is the home of the founding place of recovery. Explain that for our our listeners. Um, Akron, Ohio is where the birth of Alcoholics Anonymous actually started with Uh, a visiting physician who met with a local uh, drunk by the name of Dr. Bob, and they discovered one of the greatest, sometimes often overlooked secrets to addiction recovery, and that's that one-on-one 
connection, that bond that's needed between two people with shared experience. So AA pretty much started there. Yes. Wow. And was that because uh, these folks were in, you know, had, 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 had struggled with alcoholism or drug addiction and they, what was that? Do you know what that story was? Yeah. Uh, Bill W the, the traveling businessman, uh, was in town and he was working really hard to maintain his abstinence. And, uh, he actually turned to the local church to find out if there was someone uh, in the area, uh, someone of influence that, uh, he may be able to go and talk to and visit. I believe in divine intervention all the way around. God has been in the middle of, of addiction recovery forever. But he turned to the church. The church led him to St. Thomas Hospital and Sister, Sister Ignatia, who introduced him to Dr. Bob. And what year was this anyway? What? Uh, it was 1935. Mm-hmm. And I think that the fire that was that was lit was when they actually seen positive results from someone who uh, they had personally witnessed with a, a, a chronic condition, alcoholism, actually start to make improvements. Hmm. So, so tell me a little bit about your story. Where were you born and how did you get where you are today? I was born and raised in Akron, Ohio. It's my hometown to a, a blended family. My father had a history of working full-time to, to mask his exploitation of women, uh, my mother being one of them, um, into a family where I'm biracial, and she had two older children from a previous marriage um, that were Caucasian. and. I grew up in one of those households in the 70s where record parties were very popular back in the day where you had a lot of the well-known comedians like Richard Pryor, Red Fox, um, Dolomite, and they would always have these parties. And as a young child, uh, being curious, I always wanted to be a part of those parties. So I would wait till my older siblings and my younger sibling would go to bed and I would come downstairs and, and, and I would be the life of the party. Well, at some point, those that were in attendance, my aunts and uncles, I used to call them, decided that they would utilize me, you know, outside of entertainment by showing me how to mix drinks, uh, roll marijuana cigarettes uh, or joints. And I would actually take those while they were listening to these uh, very vulgar <laughs> uh, records and these comedians from one side of the room to the other side of the room. And at the age of six, I decided to sample or taste what, you know, everybody seemed to be enjoying. And that was both marijuana and the alcohol. Wow. Six years old. Yes. Wow. So did you continue using them? Did that just grow that was the that was the norm at our house and it wasn't just the weekends i mean it was throughout the weekdays and um i can remember just always being uh in the middle of all of that and and looking at the different faces and the people and 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 watching how they would behave and react um well into you know the 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 early hours or the late hours of the of the new day uh, the new mornings and um Oftentimes, I would I would wake up in my bed, and uh, I don't want to go too deep into my story because I just sure. got got a book out uh, that kind of goes into detail. But a lot of uh, racism in my own home, being in a blended family, um, the drugs, um, the sex, um, all of those things that 
no person should be exposed to, especially a child. Mm-hmm. And that kind of blossomed into the lifestyle, uh, joining of gangs, uh, because there was some affiliation for where my father would uh, receive his 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 drugs from. And uh, by the time I was 19 years old, I knew what it was like to have to buy diapers for a child I had fathered. I knew what the inside of an adult correctional facility had looked like. Um, spent a lot of times there in probation, just in and out of the hospital, fights, stabbings, gunshots, the whole nine yards. Hmm. So then you went through, eventually went through your own recovery program, right? And you, you. I actually went through about, I went through five different inpatient treatment programs just after my 25th birthday um, in the month of May. I had managed to get a job and was working full time and was saving some money. I was living with my mom. I'd burn all my bridges with my my wife and we had uh, four kids at the time um, in her home in public housing. And I got off work uh, after working third shift one morning, and there was a neighborhood bar that would open up and they would cash your checks there. So I went in uh, to the bar, cashed my check, and this was May 14th, 1995, at 25 years old. I went in, cashed my check, decided to have a drink, and next thing I know, uh, it was Sunday morning, about 10 a.m., knocking on the door or banging on my door, on the door of my mother's house in public housing, begging her to open up the door, dirty, um, hungover, still a little bit of hungover from the alcohol, high from the dope, and she refused to open the door. Hmm. She did not want to lose her her, um, housing um, that she had worked really hard to to get, based on some of the stuff that she had went through in her life. And I wasn't supposed to be there as an adult. Um, I was not on the lease, and I knew she didn't want to draw attention to herself. So as I got louder and louder, she opened up the door and had no idea what she was about to face. I had given her money to put up for me, and I knew that she had that money, and I wanted the party to Mm -hmm. keep going. I, I wanted to continue to get high. So I bust through the door and and I asked her for the money and she refused. So I actually took out this gun that I was used to getting my way without in the streets and I pointed it at my mother hmm. and demanded that she give me the money. Uh, she continued to refuse. Um, so I ransacked her entire apartment looking for a hiding space. And at some time, I started to come down and I realized what I had done. I had just pointed a gun and tore up my own mother's apartment. The last person on the planet that wanted anything to do with me because of where my addiction had taken me. Wow. So uh, I laid down, um, got up uh, in time for work um, that night and throughout the week, had very little to say to my mom. I avoided her, but she continued to be mom. She would prepare me meals and leave them in the microwave or in the oven for me. She left me little notes saying, I love you. Um, We can get through this. And if you check your calendar, uh, May 14th, 1995 was Mother's Day. Hmm. So my gift to my mom on Mother's Day was Hmm. to show her the, the, the dark side of addiction and what it's like to uh, be totally out of control and to pull a gun on, you know, someone. Wow. So how did your life transform to who you are today? 
when, uh, well, as I said, I went to work for that week, um, that Friday morning, because when I got off work, all throughout the week, riddled with guilt and shame and remorse for what I had done and her still being mom and willing to love on me, I got off work, got my check, went to the bar, and you can guess what happened. I wanted to kill some of that pain that I was feeling throughout the week. So I had a couple drinks there, and then it was off to the races again. Mm. The following Sunday morning, um, May 20th, I uh, found myself again at her door, begging and pleading, crying in tears. Mom, let me in. I'm sorry. I'm sick. I need help. Don't do this to me. But all in the back of my mind, I still had that same agenda because I did not accomplish what I wanted to last week. So she again reluctantly opened the door. I pushed my way in, this time knocking her to the floor and standing over her yelling and demanding that she give me my money this time. Uh, again, I pulled out the gun. And to this day, I don't know what rings more in my in my head that I can still hear the sound of that cold, hard piece of steel as it met with the left side of her head just above her eye or the gunshot uh, as I squeezed the trigger as the two met. While she laid there begging and pleading and praying uh, for God to come and save me, not her, you know, mm. I again started going through um, her apartment and tearing up and looking for a hiding spot. And once again, I started coming down and realizing that I had just pistol whipped my own mother. Mm. I, I sat on the corner of my bed and I stuck that uh, still warm gun barrel in my mouth and I squeezed the trigger. Hmm. The well, I'm, naturally, I'm still here. <laughs> but the miraculous part is, is just at that very moment as the hammer was dropping, God sent an angel into my room, and the most unlikeliest of angels, and it was my older sister who was Caucasian, who always looked at me as a burden and had nothing to say to me in years, and uh, the one that. I could overhear because she was just a year older than me telling racial jokes to her friends in the hallway at school and everything. And But she reached out and grabbed the gun just as the hammer was falling. And to this day, she has a slight handicap in her right hand. And she said, Pooh, don't. That's what, that was my nickname, Pooh. Hmm. We can get you help. And within three hours, I was on a plane to Orange County, California, where I spent another 21 days in an intensive inpatient treatment program and was afforded a two-week stay in what they called a sober living environment out there afterwards. And mm -hmm. there I met a man that was not concerned whatsoever in any of the stuff that I had done up until our meeting, just my future. Mm -hmm. And when I say genuinely concerned, he was. And, mm -hmm. you know, lo and behold, uh, he was the first man that ever really poured into me that really cared about me. He took me under his wing and we discovered, or I discovered that same secret that was uh, found years ago, that it doesn't take a slew of doctors, you know, counselors and, and nurses and psychiatrists and all that stuff. All it really takes is just one person to believe in you. And he asked me some of the most outlandish uh, or required to me some of the most outlandish things you would ever ask ask of a person. The most profound being, what do you really want to do with your life? What do you want? And I told him I wanted my wife and kids back. And then he said, well, 
it's going to take at least a year. Can you have no contact with them or any of your family members for a year? And I, I just cracked my chest open to this gentleman, Conrad. Mm. And I, I just bore my soul and said, listen, I want my wife and kids back. And now you're telling me that I have to spend a year away from them. Well, at this point, I was willing to do whatever it took not to have to repeat what I had done with my mom or relive any of the nightmares that I had suffered out there through my addiction and some of the hurt and pain that I caused. So I ended up spending a year up under this uh, man. He took me under his wing. We expanded his organization. And then one day, walking down the street on 20th Street in Westminster, California, I I heard from God. Um, I believe a, a spiritual foundation is necessary for recovery for anything. And the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I was a member of for many years, helped me form a relationship with God. And he told me, he said, this is what I want you doing for the rest of your life. And I, I, you know, still young in recovery, some of the clouds still there. You know, I thought maybe I was hallucinating, but no, Mm -hmm. I knew it was him. And and uh, I eventually agreed and um, helped that that man turn his program into an eight bed house serving eight gentlemen, four and five or level four and five offenders coming straight home from prison to serving up to 18,000 men and women up and down the coast of California and mm-hmm. eventually brought his program plus mine, a nice hybrid to Ohio and have been rocking and rolling ever since. Wow. Where would you be if he hadn't taken the time and the energy to invest into your life? I think that some of the the plaguing of the past, some of the stuff that I had done, even the attempts that I had made prior to, uh, those five inpatients did not include the six, seven outpatients that I was involved in. I mean, all the, none of the stuff that worked, even working with a close psychologist, you know, seemed to have the effect of one person just saying, hey, I understand. You know, Mm -hmm. I believe today that we all walk down the same roads in life, just a different pair of shoes. And how we perceive ourselves is based on the perception or how other things were role modeled to us on how to handle any situation. And God saw fit for this man to come in my life because one of his major goals was while he was slamming dope in the janitor's closet at the hospital while his oldest daughter was being born, all he wanted was his relationship with his wife and kids. So hmm. there was some connection there. But to answer your question, I think I would probably be dead right now. Wow. And just think of all the people that your life has impacted over the years. And how many others would be dead? I, I think I, I really attribute that to this man, Warren, Warren J. Boyd, who who God sent in my life, who had enough insight and enough courage to not only work his own program of recovery, but to take on the responsibility of helping others. And uh, that was instilled in me, not only through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, but directly from him. And I, I tell him all the time, uh, Warren, you have had a direct impact on hundreds of thousands of people, you know, throughout your life, but you have had an indirect impact on millions because you took the time to take me under your wing and love on me the way that I needed to at the time. Hmm. Why is it important for 
people in recovery to be mentored, to be helped by others who have who are in recovery? I, I think the number one thing is is that we, we we can relate. You know, situations and circumstances are unique to the individual, just like our fingerprints. But at the same time, the emotional effects uh, of what we go through, the physical effects um, that we go through, they're all the same. And that forms that common bond to where we're able to get down in a hole and just be with someone if that's where they're at, or reach down, pull them up, and 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 continue to walk beside them. And that's it's practiced in so many different areas uh, when it comes to health and wellness. Putting somebody or, uh, or partnering somebody with a peer, someone who has that lived experience that it was overlooked for so long or, or existed in the shadows up until recently as being effective. Hmm. And on the other hand, why is it important for someone in recovery to reach back and help the next person? From my experience, it is the closest thing to a guarantee that we will never pick up uh, ever again. When you are actively involved in those that are still for lack of a better term, sick and suffering or struggling in some area, it takes you so far out of the equation as far as what may be going on in your life, provides that social connectivity that we all need as human beings. And also the results can be, I mean, it's a, it's a symbiotic re relationship when it comes to uh, peer support and uh, one addict or one person in recovery helping another person in recovery. Hmm. So you're around people in recovery pretty much every day. Yeah, and <laughs> it's funny you should ask because quite honestly, for years, I really struggled with that um, on whether it was fear-driven or if it was really me hearing from God. You know, I, I go back and forth with that sometimes because mm -hmm. um, I know firsthand that my uh, recovery, uh, my almost 24 years now of uh, being completely and totally abstinent is greatly attributed to being in the face of those and, and holding the hands and loving on those that are still actively using and uh, as far as being into the maintenance stage of recovery. Mm -hmm. So again, I don't, I, it's, it's vital to my program. Um, and there were times when I wouldn't go to bed, I would, I would call people and say, Hey, what are you struggling with today at, at, mm. at night? You know, just to make sure that I was doing my part. <laughs> yeah. So how do you maintain your, I guess, is, is that the way you maintain your sanity or your health, your, your mental health? Uh, the, the Bible teaches us that we should always exonor or honor people highly um, than ourselves. Um, I am a Christian. Um, that is probably my primary pathway to recovery, even though um, I have taken bits and pieces from so many pathways over the years and personalized what works for me. And that is one of my biggest messages that I try to put out there for individuals. I was born and raised, for lack of better words, in the rooms of 12-step. And um, at some point, I, I realized that I had started to get real comfortable in that bubble that I had created that was very similar to the bubble I had created in my active addiction. And when I got on a plane to Orange County, California, that was the first time that I was outside of my the, my community of Akron, Ohio. And uh, I, I got to discover that there was a great, big, beautiful world out there with my name written all over it. 
And I think that really led to me wanting to explore and expand and kind of dip my toe in the waters of different pathways to recovery and listening to other individuals that um, have utilized other methods of staying clean and, and, and just working on themselves and being aware of who I am and, and what I like. It was huge. So today I consider myself a recovery mutt, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, at the core of that is the taking on of personal responsibility of helping others who are still um, struggling in any area. And, and I, I really have to point this out, Conrad. If we wholeheartedly believe that our drinking and drugging are signs and symptoms of much deeper rooted challenges or problems that we have, then we can't always attribute the growth that we need in our lives directly to that. It may have been our coping, uh, our way of coping. It may have been our way of dealing with or even masking some of the pain by some of the stuff that we've had to endure. But at the end of the day, you are still alive. You have a life and there is a world out there that is calling for you and you are sent with a purpose to contribute to this planet. And regardless if drugs and alcohol are or were a part of your history, that purpose is still in place. So we've mm -hmm. got to we've got to find out what that is and pull that out and work towards that. That is such a powerful message that each one of us has purpose and meaning. Yes. And when we, you know, I know in my own life, when I discovered kind of why I'm here in, and I'm still in that discovery phase, I think, and probably will be all of my life. But, you know, when I kind of realized that, wow, I can, I can do this that may impact another person's life or may impact the trajectory of, you know, even my kids, mm -hmm. that brings so much joy and peace yes. in my world. Yes. And, and I'm a peace junkie, you know, today, <laughs> I don't even like to use the word junkie, but sure. you know, I, I crave it. And the only way for, for that craving to be satisfied is to, by helping somebody else and show them, um, how valuable they are, you know, to not only to themselves, their, their immediate families, but those that they will encounter in life. Mm -hmm. Is it important for you at times just to, uh, unplug and go and clear the brain. And, and what do you do when you do that? Uh, it's self care is extremely important to me. Empty vessels, you know, uh, make room for a lot. But if you spend the majority of your time pouring out and pouring into others and, and helping and assisting, you have to know what you enjoy and then take the time on purpose to do that. I, I train a lot of the peer supporters around the state of Ohio and um, every morning we'll check in during those trainings on, on what we did for self-care the day before. Hmm. And I shared last week, and this is something that uh, my wife will attest to. I, I take the time to not only schedule activities that I enjoy like kayaking and fishing and camping and walks and, and spending time with the kids and grandbabies, but I, I, I have a, uh, I schedule time to just cry, you know, wow. and 
last week, it came up unexpectedly because I get tremendously busy at times. And uh, when it was my turn to, or that next day, when I opened up my planner and it said nothing simply but just cry, that's something mm-hmm. that I do on a regular basis on purpose. Wow. Um, outside of the therapeutic side of that, there's such such a release and a relief in it uh, when you can go out and help the world and see such see and hear such horrific stories of pain and suffering um, provide hope but for me you still carry that stuff and i don't consider myself so unique that the others that are working in the industry in the field don't don't experience that also so uh, self-awareness and time to take care of you is 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 huge on my list because you can only give to others what you have received right absolutely absolutely and and you sprinkle some of that what you received with your own experience and what works with you and you're planting seeds of hope that will eventually blossom into something unimaginable for that individual and if you're blessed to be a witness to them coming out, I mean, it's even more. That's the payday right there. Mm-hmm. So, kind of in the big picture, I think we kind of talked about this in a in a maybe a longer way. But what what makes your heart sing? What makes my heart sing is when you see that light bulb come on. You know, when you see individuals, moms and dads, and and kids. Uh, being returned to their loved ones, husbands and wives coming back together. When you get unexpected emails and and text messages that, hey, I just graduated, you know, I did what we talked about. The message that when you realize that people are now focused on their potential and not the problems, that just brings me the greatest amount of joy. When somebody who has been irresponsible for years in so many different areas, you know, says, hey, I just got a job, you know, um, I wouldn't have been able to do it if you hadn't encouraged me, you know, things along that lines. And then what really makes my heart sing, Conrad, is because I've been doing this for, uh, for, for so long that there are some up and coming leaders that have taken on the spirit of responsibility. And my ultimate dream before I leave this planet is to not only connect with them and, 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 and pour into them and uh, guide them and get some guidance and learn from them also, but to watch them take this to another level, recovery mm-hmm. to another level. Mm-hmm. If I don't like to use the word regret, but I wish looking back now at where this all started for me and the things that we've been able to accomplish through the ministry and, and, and through um, some of my work um, with the state and with the country, kept a chronological order of everything, every milestone that has happened Um just so that we can show this up and coming generation that is on fire for recovery. 10 years ago, you could name five advocates, you know, in the state of Ohio. Hmm. Now the, the state is riddled with them. 
You know, you could name a handful of individuals that were down in the trenches outside of the basements of churches and everything, spreading the word, unashamed, unafraid of their past or the fact that they carried uh, or identified themselves at one time as addict or alcoholic. You know, the world is is embraced with them right now. There's hundreds of thousands of us. And to me, that really makes my heart sing today. That That's amazing. So you've had some tragedy in your own family. Can you talk about that a little bit? And how did that loss impact what you do in your in your business life? Well, I have um, over the the years, addiction has touched our family in, in in ways that it has touched many other lives. I had been working for. Um, in the field and helping others for more than uh, 23 years. And I lost plenty of cousins and nephews and nieces, some of which are still actively using a total of 247 close friends and family members, not people that I've heard of, but close friends and family members. Wow. And, you know, you don't get to a point to where you're numb at all um, to death. Um, it just becomes a, a natural part of what we all have to accept, accept as being the ultimate outcome in each and every one of our lives. But when you are considered an addiction recovery expert and you have reshaped service delivery and your name appears and your words on over 200 pieces of legislation and you have seen so many people come in and out your doors and your numbers uh, based on what they consider personal success are through the roof. You know, losing um, a son is probably one of those things that I don't think anybody will ever truly be able to move beyond uh, at this point in my life Mm -hmm. um, at the depths of oh my God, how could this happen? How could I be so blind? And then to have your family um, basically um, tell you that you are so preoccupied with saving everybody else's life that you missed what was going on in your own son's life. Mm-hmm. It's... um it's it's one of those things that's designed to really take you out, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I thank God for the support group that my family, my wife and I have in place. I thank God for those that stepped up and stepped in. And I don't share this with a lot of people. I mean, to many, it's still, they don't know. Mm. And that's not behind, uh, you know, ego or anything like that. You know, it's not behind guilt or shame. My purpose, my mission was made clear many years ago. Mm -hmm. And if it was to include reaching or joining in with, you know, the thousands, if not millions of other parents that have suffered along the same lines, joining those ranks, I don't think it was designed to throw me off of my primary purpose. Mm -hmm. And 
that's not me talking. That's the best that I can come up with through my spiritual life and my, my relationship with God as far as being the mission, because it, it, it halted everything for a while. Sure. You know, and, you know, uh, to the point to where I did not want anything to do with anybody who was still using, you know, a vengeful spirit fell upon me to where I was actually calculating the death of anyone that I knew was still selling or participating in the trafficking of drugs. Mm. And that's just not who I am. That's not who, that's who I was at one time, mm-hmm. very capable of those things. But the hard work and the effort and the love that was needed um, to get to where I have been able to have an impact, my, my life's goal, my mission, what, what God has identified as my purpose, couldn't be obscured by that. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say thank you for being vulnerable and willing to share that. I, I can't imagine that, that scenario and that situation and, you know, our prayers are with you and your family and as you continue to do what you do and what you're called to do. Thank you. And, uh, so as we start to wrap up this, this conversation of really, it's amazing to hear your story and the things that you've been able to accomplish and the, the lives that have been changed because of your influence. And, and you've recently written a book about your, your story. And can you talk about that? Yes. Um, for a very long time, the book was in, in, intended to really share my story. And it was laid out in a in a very meaningful way that would just touch the lives of those who would pick up and read it. And I was blessed to come across a publishing company um, who who saw that as an opportunity to um, not only provide the hope that telling our story does to anyone that's struggling, but also an opportunity to look at the ways that I have been able to, through my journey, touch as many people's lives and change, you know, the direction of how recovery support was going and what we could really do to have an even larger impact. And that was pointed out to me because for years we knew that we had a viable piece to a solution. Um, That's not only the recovery housing part that we provide through FI, the telling of our personal stories, but also that peer support, that one-on-one that I talked about that I was able to receive so freely. Mm -hmm. So we kind of broke it up pulled out some keys. And again, for years, I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, you know, on the highest peaks that I could get to. Listen, we found something that works for people. We we have a solution, a huge part of a solution. And we were able to implement that through the uh, introduction of recovery coaching to Ohio and the development of the Ohio peer supporter model and that curriculum. And, you know, the more than 800 individuals that I've helped train over the years. But it still wasn't enough. We're talking about an epidemic through opioids or heroin that every community has been affected by up uh, now. 
you know, the, the, the degrees of separation are gone. Mm -hmm. Uh, we are all affected whether directly or indirectly. So my publisher, my editing uh, partner, my book mentor, he said, what is the number one thing that you encounter when it comes to people who have suffered the loss of life or the devastation behind, um, uh, addiction? And I said, they're, that they're mad at God, mm. you know, as a Christian, you know, I always try to include him and not impose, but, um, let people know that, you know, based on what I believe there is a solution and he's a huge part of it, if not the answer ultimately, but, and they would make statements like F F God, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then go on this, this rant about all the letdowns that they, or disappointments that they have suffered according to him and their understanding of him. So I, I said, well, well, my mentor said, well, what if we change that? Because we know it's not God. We know it's not the person. We know it's not other people. What if it's the disease itself? Mm-hmm. And we came up with the title F addiction. And uh, he said, no, we need to capture what is out there right now that has taken so many lives of our loved ones. And I said, what, heroin? And he said, yeah. I said, well, there's a foundation dedicated to that. You know, we can't get a book off the ground, <laughs> you know, with, with that, with, with a title like that. Mm-hmm. But he said, let's go for it. I really feel this. Why don't you pray about it? And I did. And the title of the book is uh, uh, Fuck Heroin. Keys to winning on the addiction battlefield, battle scars beneath the wardrobe of purpose. And in this book, not only do we talk about what's needed for the individual and some of the very simple practical approaches and things that they can do to improve their lives and and maintain abstinence, but some of the things that communities can do, some of the things that as an individual, as you grow, how you can get involved and take it to a next level once you realize the responsibility that you have to reaching back and going back and helping pull other people out of the depths of addiction. So this podcast is coming out on May 20th. You're launching this book. It's being released on what date? The We are having a launch party on May 18th uh, in Youngstown, Ohio at one of uh, uh, America's largest treatment centers for addiction, right, based right here in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And on May 21st in Akron, Ohio, uh, we're going to have another soft launch, uh, so a softer launch, let me put it that way, <laughs> <laughs> to where we're kind of covering the celebratory or celebration aspects needed with this milestone in my personal life. Mm-hmm. We're going to recognize uh, some of the warriors that are out there that are that are fighting each and every day with, uh, at the party. We're going to, there's going to be a dance. I've got some celebrities coming in. I mean, it's just going to be a great time. Mm-hmm. And on May 21st, I'm going to invite some uh, very intimate friends that are of influence out in the community, some of the politicians, some of the, the folks from all over the country that have supported me to, again, a, a more intimate, softer launch and also celebrate 24 years of recovery on that day. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, congratulations on your recovery. And of course, congratulations on the book. And I really look forward to reading it and diving into it to to learn more about you and about what you're doing. So as people listen to this podcast uh, in 
the next weeks and months, where can they find the book? They can go to directly to www.fuckheroinbook.com. That's www.fuckheroinbook.com. And I'd like everybody to bear in mind that this book is not only going to provide those keys that we talked about and uh, uh, some of my story and the hope that it provides, but for every 247 books um, sold, uh, we're going to provide recovery housing for uh, an individual in need anywhere around the country. So it's, it's, uh, it's not a money, it's, not a money maker. It's it's there's a cause behind it and a purpose. And if you remember, 247 again is the number of close friends and family members that I've lost over the years to addiction. Wow. So for every 247 people who buy a book, then one person is going to be able to go through recovery. Yes, they're wow. going to be able to found a, 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 a they're going to be provided a the the same foundation through a quality recovery home or housing provider that I was afforded anywhere in the country. Wow, and that that is absolutely life changing. And who knows how many more you know, thousands of people will be impacted because of that one life, just like your life was changed. Yes. And so I encourage everyone to go buy the book. Let's let's sell tens of thousands of these books, if not hundreds of thousands of them, and uh, let's get it out there so we can uh, so Denny and his team can save even more lives in the future. Amen. So Denny, it's been a joy to take time to talk with you. Uh, you're a hero, and in many ways, and I want to say thank you for this opportunity to. Uh, for taking time to uh, to talk to me and being a part of this podcast. And I uh, just want to encourage you to keep on keeping on. And I look forward to, uh, you know, speaking to you again you know, soon. Thank you, Conrad. It's been an honor to be on the, on the show with you. Denny, thanks so much for spending time with me on today's program. And listeners, don't forget to check out Denny's new book. You can find it at F-U-C-K. H-E-R-O-I-N-B-O-O-K dot com. Thanks so much for listening. And if you like what you're hearing on this show, make sure you hit the subscribe button and please share it with your friends and family. And I'm always eager to hear your feedback. So leave some of that for me as well. Be sure to tune in next Monday on the My Story podcast for an interview with Keola Benelli. She's the founder of the Savvy, Sexy, and Social Women's Club. She's a serial entrepreneur who started businesses in the fashion, catering, and event planning industries. She has a fascinating story, and I can't wait to share it. That's next Monday on the My Story Podcast. The My Story Podcast is a production of Conjo Studios, an award-winning video production company whose focus is helping you tell your story. Visit conjostudios.com, click on the blue Get a Quote button, and let them know what you need. Then watch your stress melt away as their team does the magic of producing your next video or film project. That's conjostudios.com, telling stories that matter. And if you've enjoyed the music on today's show, it comes from my friend Drew Davidson. You can find all his music on iTunes or Spotify or on his website at drewdavidson.com. Last, if you have an idea for an interview you'd like to hear, send me a message and I'll see what I can do. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you again next week on the My Story Podcast. Podcast.